evening, everybody. Good to be in the house of God. Amen. Amen. Uh, great service this morning over at Alder Creek Middle School in the auditorium. We had eight churches that were participating in the service. Estimates are somewhere between uh, five and a half to six hundred people in attendance today. Uh, so that was awesome. It was great to be inside and not outside this year. Uh, last year we were outside, and if you remember, it was uh, this same weekend last year, but the weather was decidedly different last year. Not 84 degrees and sunny like it was today, but uh, it was very cold and it was overcast. And when the sun did break through, we, we recognized that everybody last year had congregated up in the upper uh, left-hand corner from our view where the sun would actually hit people, uh, not in the overhang, and so we were very lopsided last year, uh, but to have all the sections this morning with people in it, uh, there were 765 seats in the auditorium, and the auditorium actually felt like it was kind of full, and I thought, wow, this is a, this is a neat feel, and what a great service um, where Jesus was exalted, Jesus was magnified, and the unity of the church was exemplified, and it was just really, really encouraging. I know all of the pastors that were there afterwards as we just visited for a few moments, and then a few comments were being made uh, via text, and it was just excellent to see God move. And we teased one of the pastors because Matthew in his dissertation was, <laughs> or in his, uh, in his uh, testimony slash sermon he uh, mentioned that one of those pastors uh, had helped us with our technological things because we were antiquated, and so he used the phrase, and Ed, Pastor Ed, is a genius. And so then uh, a few comments were being passed with Ed, part of it, that we were all in trouble now because Ed was going to have an ego that we weren't going to be able to manage very well, and so it was lots of fun. And uh, anyway, it was great, and... Uh, we had 55 to 60 kids in the kids' area, which was just marvelous. Uh, they actually, I, we had two to three workers from each of the churches, and I think there was as many as 20 workers down there, and they felt like they wished they had a few more workers. And uh, so it was uh, just, a, just a great day. Anyway, uh, if you weren't there, there were a couple of announcements. That's where I was going. Uh, there is next month in October on the 15th. It's a Saturday from 9 to 2. There is a seminar that is being sponsored by All One, or the churches of All One, if you will, and it's a redemptive response to homosexuality. And it really will be an opportunity for uh, the body of Christ to hear the story of a young man who was struggling with uh, his sexuality. And by God's redeeming grace, he uh, came out of a lifestyle of homosexuality and he is now a married man. He has uh, several children. And he helped form a ministry called Portland Fellowship. And he's been a part of Portland Fellowship for, I want to say, tw as many as 25 years. And so James, Jason Thompson will be chairing. There will be four segments. The last segment uh, will be a Q&A with some of the pastors also in the All One, as well as Jason up there. Uh, so an opportunity to interact and ask questions on a very personal level, if you have family members uh, that you are trying to communicate in a loving way, truth. Um, so uh, you'll hear his story and uh, testimony of a young woman as well. 
And so great, great opportunity. There is a fee associated with that. It's a $10 registration fee. And that really is to cover the cost of the box lunch. And we'd like to have something a little bit aside set that we can do an honorarium for Jason, even though he has said he doesn't want us to do an honorarium. We want to be a blessing to him. So uh, please come and be a part of that. Uh, you can register uh, beginning this coming Sunday. So the, the next two Sundays you'll be able to register and uh, we'll be able to also register online. Uh, you can let us know via Facebook and uh, take care of your funds and so forth on Sundays. It's great. Also, we have a men's conference coming up in December, December 3rd, uh, and it's uh, Men of Valor. It's a fellowship breakfast, and that fellowship breakfast will, um, it is an all-you-can-eat buffet, which is marvelous. It's at the Monarch Hotel. They told me there, when I said there's a lot of men that are going to come, and men generally have voracious appetites on Saturdays when there's a breakfast, and, I, and they said, your men will not go away hungry. And I said, okay, if you can say pork, we're going to be good. And so uh, they bacon and sausage and those kinds of things. Anyway, men, uh, come out and be a part of that. We have great uh, speakers. And uh, Jason mentioned to me that I should let everyone know when, when I mentioned that we have Al Egg, who is the chaplain for the Portland Trailblazers and the Portland State Vikings. We have Neil Lomax, who is involved on many levels. He is an eight-year NFL quarterback, and he's uh, involved in the school districts right now. He actually uh, holds some records even to this day in the NFL. Uh, and then I mentioned Jeff Hart, and I mentioned that he was an 11-year uh, national football and USFL football player, even I think one year up in Canada. Uh, he said, hey, you should be mentioning that Jeff Hart is also the chaplain for the SWAT team in Upset. And I thought, hey, I should have said that. And uh, Dr. Mark Strong, who's a personal friend of mine, uh, we've been uh, in ministry side-by-side side for the past 33 years. In fact, when my wife and I were still dating, uh, there was a transition in leadership in the church and the college group, and Mark came in and stepped in and kind of filled in. We had a, a college group was meeting down at Portland State University, and uh, Mark was uh, helping facilitate that, and just a great brother in the Lord. And he's involved with a men's movement uh, in this area, as well as across the United States, and he's actually got a conference that's coming up, I think, in 2017 in Uganda. It's called the Father, uh, the Father Shift, and it is fathering a fatherless generation and how the church has an opportunity to step up and love young people who are growing up in homes without fathers. And so an excellent opportunity for men to step in. So that's coming up. And then, of course, our All One Christmas, which will be on uh, December 11th. So lots of stuff happening in the holiday season as we get going. There will be some other things uh, noted. Uh, the ladies' retreat is coming up, so ladies are excited. I think they have a group of about 40 ladies going to the ladies' retreat. That's exciting. Uh, so we'll be praying for them. They'll be gone uh, next weekend. While we're uh, those that are going will be gone, and the rest of us will be meeting here and uh, going through the book of Genesis. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3 tonight. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. We didn't actually finish the entire chapter, and so I want to just pick back up beginning in verse 20 and note a couple of things. We'll just make note of a handful of things in this portion of Scripture so Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, we have, uh, well, preceding verses, we have really the doctrine of the fall of man. And uh, Adam and Eve were both in a disobedient state. Uh, Eve was deceived, and Adam was in full knowledge, and he committed a sin. Uh, and so sin goes with the man. And so we come to verse 20, and it says, Adam called his wife's name Eve 
because she was the mother of all living. Uh, I'd like to just note right here that this this is a marriage. He called his wife Eve. I'd like to make note also in light of the uh, redemptive response to homosexuality that we find that in the beginning it was man and woman. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be united or cleave to his wife. And uh, so marriage from God's perspective is between a man and a woman. And she, Eve, uh, called Eve because she was the mother of all living in that uh, all of us. Adam and Eve were direct creations of God, bara Elohim in the Hebrew, created by God. We, however, are sons and daughter of sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and so we all come from Eve, if you will. Verse twenty one. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The, the notation I'd just like to make in verse 21, if you remember earlier in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sought to make coverings for themselves, and they sewed leaves to try and cover. And we noted last week that man's tendency is to do that. Man tries to cover his own transgression. When man sins, when we sin, our tendency is to try and cover or hide, if you will. Adam and Eve did both of those. They both tried to make coverings as well as they tried to hide. But there seems to be a little bit more to this, and this is certainly conjecture, but it seems to be that they also were trying to cover or atone for, if you will. And God demonstrates here that atonement is in the shedding of blood. For he slays at least a lamb, more than likely two lambs, or two animals, if you will, and makes not only clothing for them, uh, but makes atonement for them. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next chapter, because I believe there's implications from the next chapter that would lead us to understand that there has been a prescription given uh, for atonement. And so we'll look at that in just a few moments. Verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, and also take of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Let, let, me, let me make this sentence or statement, if you will. Uh, I'm so grateful that God did not want us to live forever in a state of sinfulness. So he protected us, if you will, from being able to extend our hand forth and eat of the tree of life, to remain in a state of sinfulness. Uh, God's love is that we would not. And so I, I, I see a picture of grace here, certainly. Um, it's noteworthy as we go a little bit further. Well, it's noteworthy uh, that he says has become like one of us. I think there is that triune element associated with that language there and the utilization of that uh, pronoun, if you will. 
Verse 23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now I've heard a number of, and I've read a number of commentaries and listened to a number of sermons where uh, some have noted that it's of interest that God placed cherubim. It's plural. The I-M ending is the Hebrew plurality. And so there were cherubim. Cherubim seemed to be the more uh, higher-ranking angelic beings. So the thought was at least asserted, and again, this is conjecture, but the thought is asserted if, if the intention was solely to keep Adam and Eve from the tree of life, one angel would be sufficient for that assignment. We have stories in the Old Testament, and one in particular, where one angel in one night slew 184,000 soldiers. You, you'd think that one angel would be sufficient to keep Adam and Eve out. So, doing a little bit of research, uh, there are a number of extra-biblical resources available, and one of which there are the oral traditions or the oral teachings of the Jews that have been translated into Aramaic, and they are called the Targums. And there are a number of Targums. One in particular is by the Jews in the first century, certainly the Jews of Jesus' day, was the teaching or oral teachings of the Old Testament or the Pentateuch very uh, uh, specifically. Uh, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but uh, Onkelos, the Targum of Onkelos. There's the Targum of Jerusalem. Another name for that is the Targum of Jonathan. And it's interesting to read what the oral teachings that were handed down from generation to generation say in reference to this portion of the cherubim. Because later he references, or that references in those oral teachings about Cain and Abel coming to the Lord to present their offerings. Now, before I say what the Targums refer to, again, let me say this is extra-biblical, it is conjecture, it is oral teachings from the Jews, but what it can do is it can certainly make us think, and it's something to consider. But let me reference this in relationship, and I, and I talked about this in some measure when we were going through the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation is, is a book in its entirety, a prophecy. And so we talked about prophecy from the Greek mind versus the Eastern or Hebrew mind. So the Greek or Western mindset, when we think of prophecy, our initial thinking is prediction, fulfillment. Prediction, fulfillment. But the Eastern Hebrew Jewish mindset in relationship to prophecy is to 
look for patterns. Patterns. And so when I was reading the Targum of Ankylos and the Targum of Jerusalem, and they were parallel readings as I read them, it was very interesting because what I saw there is what would be in appearance the beginning of a pattern that we would see throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, certainly with the tabernacle, certainly with the Ark of the Covenant, ultimately the tabernacle, and then the temple. What the Targums and those oral teachings indicated was that there were cherubim placed, and in between the cherubim was the Shekinah glory of God that would rest between or above the cherubim. And it was the custom of all men to come and present their gifts to the Lord at the entrance to the tree of life. Not that they would have access to, but it was there that they would bring their offerings. Now, I say that because it's interesting to me as we go a little bit further in Scripture, we find that there's instruction given to uh, make the Ark of the Covenant, where there would be on top of the uh, Ark the mercy seat, and there were two cherubs, on one on either side, so the cherubim and the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory, would rest above the cherubim. So we would see that pattern, if you will. So it's possible. It's possible. I say that, though, also to mention that the Targum, as you get into chapter 4, references Cain and Abel, who will be bringing their offerings to the Lord. And so there is a potential picture, if you will, of that very act transpiring right there in that particular area. So it's conjecture, it's extra-biblical, but there it could give a picture and a fullness of what is transpiring. But let's go a little further here and read in chapter 4 and beginning in chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. This is, in fact, the first mention of sex in the Bible. Adam knew Eve, his wife. I think it's noteworthy that the term knew or to know is an interpersonal relationship. And there is an intimacy and a depth of intimacy. I hope I'm not making you uncomfortable. <laughs> Lots of activity happening in the front row here. Um, now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I would simply say to every man and every woman who is married, this is a noteworthy thing in terms of intimacy, to be known and to know and to know in this way. Uh, there's a tenderness about that, and it's very, very beautiful. Um, I would note also that this does not denote that it's the first time that Adam and Eve have had sex or had intercourse or knowing one another. It's simply the first time after the fall that we have the reference of it. Some have made conjecture that it's very probable that the fall occurred very rapidly 
because conception would have been an inevitability in a perfect set in the Garden of Eden before there was sin. Again, that's simply conjecture. We don't have timelines, and we don't know how long that was. What we do know is that Adam had to name all the animals, and that in and of itself would have taken a tremendous amount of time, right? I mean, that's a, that's a very real reality that we have to at least digest. There's some time that's passing. And so all of those biological things that have to work, it's very probable that these two had known each other this time. It's after the fall, and we don't know how long after the fall. It's possible that Eve had already conceived daughters. But here she receives from the Lord a man-child. And it's probable to think that she likely assumed, possibly Adam as well, that this, in fact, was the promise from the Lord, the seed of a woman that this man was going to be the Redeemer. Probably to her heart's dismay, not only was he not the Redeemer, he becomes a murderer. And so, quite the opposite. But, and I want to I put that thought, at least plant that seed, in relationship to Adam and Eve having children. We have reference to specific kids, Cain and Abel and later Seth, but the scripture tells us that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters, many sons and daughters. Later, and a question that comes up often by uh, agnostics is where did Cain find a wife? Well, they had many sons and daughters, and we can do some mathematics about that. We won't immediately, but uh, there's a probability, and some would even suggest that there were uh, hundreds, if not thousands, already on the planet uh, by, by the time some of these things are occurring. Not, obviously, this first son, but uh, just down road when he is getting ready to uh, leave because of the, the murder. So let's, let's, let's move forward. I have acquired a man from the Lord, she said. Uh, Cain, his name uh, could be translated literally begotten, if you will. Uh, then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Note that time clearly has transpired in here. We don't, we don't know how old they were at this point, but we know one was a tender of sheep and one was a tiller of the ground. It's possible... It's possible that they were teenagers. It's possible that they were just now 12 years old. They could be 22 years old. We don't have that information. But we know time has transpired. The Targum mentions something. I think it's the Targum of Jerusalem mentions uh, something that I had not ever considered. But some have thought that Cain and Abel were actually twins. So she bore Cain and then Abel. And I hadn't, I hadn't ever heard that. And as I read the Targum, I thought, well, no, that's an interesting thought. Again, it's, uh, we won't uh, belabor. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Okay. Uh, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Let me also just make note of this now 
because oftentimes when we see in the next few verses when they bring in the, do, in, in the process of time, when they bring their offerings, you'll note that the shepherd brings a lamb and the fat and the tiller of the ground brings a harvest of the earth. But that's not directly correlated to their job and what they do. What they bring is not connected necessarily to what they do. Anybody make, does that make sense? Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define that in greater terms as we go here. So verse 3 says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Agnostics and atheists regularly will draw on this in terms of the respecter of persons and why and what is transpiring here. Um, again, I would reference there's a time element associated with this. Time has transpired. These are now, and the reason I mention the 12 years old, because we have a picture of Jesus Christ at 12 years old. That is the first occurrence for him at Passover where he would be able to enter into the temple grounds. You remember the story. Mary and Joseph, after the Passover, they're making their way back to their home. Three uh, uh, days and a half journey. They realize, where's Jesus? He's not amongst the relatives. They hustle back to the city. They're searching for him. Three days, they find him. Jesus, how could you? And he says, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Well, this is his first opportunity to be in the temple. And so it's, it, there's a participation, if you will, in that whole Passover process. And so it's interesting to note that in the Targum, it mentions, Targum of Ankala, it mentions, and their oral teaching is that this event occurred on the 14th of the month of Nisan, which would be the day of Passover, where the Passover feast is celebrated. And so it's noteworthy. Now, I reference that because it's interesting to me and I think to all students of the Word of God, when there's an additional detail that is given, we ought to ask the question, why is that detail given? And we find that in this story it says, or in this narrative it says, in the process of time, uh, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat seems to be an additional piece of information for us and of their fat. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, this would be a familiar phrase. In fact, the book of Leviticus mentions it oftentimes. And at the end of the day, if you look at Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 16, it would tell you that the, Lord, that the fat belongs to the Lord. And the fat is the sweet-smelling aroma of the sacrifice that is made. But one has to ask the question, how did Abel know that? 
Did we know that? It presupposes that some information has disseminated on what is proper in terms of worship, what is proper in terms of sacrifice. It's possible that that goes all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 21, where God shed the blood of those innocent animals and atoned for their sin. It's very possible that what is transpiring here is this is a sacrifice for atonement, and the prescription was that there would be the shedding of blood. And Cain, in his heart, apparently, must have thought that his work was good enough. This does, this does bring up another question, and I'm just going to throw this out there as a thought. One Bible teacher asked it this way, how many animals did Noah put on the ark of each kind of animal? How many of each kind did Noah put on the ark? Our normal response is, well, two of every animal. But there's seven of some animal. Seven of what kind of animal? Every clean animal. Someone might have to ask the question, how did he know which animals were clean? It denotes information. Now, we don't have that information, but clearly information has been passed down. Now, the oral teachings around the first century of the Jews would tell us what that is, that there was a prescription given for atonement, the shedding of blood. It's very possible that those clean animals, why the additional clean animals? That there would be the availability for sacrifice. And so, I leave that with you. You can do your own study on that, but it it's interesting, and the question comes up often in relationship to Abel's gift being respected. And verse 5 says, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So one is acceptable, one is not. There is a prescription for forgiveness. People often say, well, I'm going to worship God in my own way. The Bible also reminds us there is a way that seems right to a man, but what? The end leads to death. There is only one way to God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, there is a way. Cain, his offering was not respected, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. I love the dialogue that's very direct with Cain. God doesn't beat around the bush when we are in a place of disobedience either. And you'll note that there is at least five or six different questionings that God has with Cain. One would wonder what this is all about, but 
it says, So the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Let me back up for a moment and ask this question. How did Cain and Abel know that their gift was either accepted or not accepted or respected and unrespected? How did they know that? How would they have known that? Again, this is conjecture, and I would just I would simply put it out there. If the Targum, these oral teachings of the Jews that had been handed down, is accurate, and the cherubim are there, and the Lord is there, seated amongst the cherub, and in the process of time, people would come and make their offerings to the Lord. We do have accounts in the Old Testament, at least six different accounts, where the offerings of men were received and accepted by the Lord with fire that comes either from the rock or from heaven to consume the offering. Uh, Somehow these two knew that it was acceptable. Could be it was just a dialogue. Could be that fire consumed the one and not the other. Regardless, we would recognize that Cain is beginning to deal with something internal. He's dealing with something internal. He's dealing with a pride issue. What he did with his own hand was unacceptable. And that's a difficult thing sometimes for people, for us, to swallow what we do, our work. And let me say this, and it's a reminder to all of us, uh, but we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. We as followers of Jesus oftentimes fall into the trap of somehow thinking we can add to the grace of God and somehow gain favor from the Lord. We make, and we don't do this necessarily consciously, but we do certain things and we think certain ways and we listen to the whispers of our cunning and crafty adversary, the devil who's roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we somehow think, well, God's not answering my prayers. Maybe I need to be doing something more to gain his favor. Maybe I need to read my Bible more. Maybe I need to go to church more. Maybe I need to give more. Maybe I need to be in more fellowship. Maybe I should stop these rebellious sins in my life. And I would say yes and amen to that one. But the idea there is somehow we think that we can gain more of God's favor. Let me erase that kind of thinking or those arguments that come into our minds and in our hearts and in our thoughts. Those are not true thoughts. We cannot gain any more of God's favor because we already have all of it. Every good and perfect gift flows from the Father of lights. Every promise of God is in Him, yes, and in Him, amen. We have been blessed with everything. Every spiritual blessing 
Galatians chapter 3 reminds us that we are blessed with believing Abraham. Abraham, God said, I am your exceedingly great reward. We already have everything. That's epic. So we need not think that something that we can do with our hands If I just serve more, maybe I need to do more outreach. And let me tell you, people, we, I, get caught in. More, 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 more. Well, someone has said, if the devil can't get us tripped up by sinning, he'll get us tripped up by busyness. Busy, busy, busy. Busy, busy, busy. Do, 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 do. And we begin to neglect and we begin to get into a mechanical mode and it's not the relationship that God wants with us. He, when Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. We can now find our Sabbath rest in the Lord. Okay. So he says, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? Now he's having direct conversation with Cain, and he's addressing it head on. I see, I know, and I'm asking. Now, does God already know the answers to these questions? The answer is yes. Why would he ask these questions? I believe he's affording Cain the opportunity to get right. And to do right. He says, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do right, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. There's a message in there for you and I. If we do right, We'll be accepted. There is a way. There is a way. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. And if we do right, if we put and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be accepted. And we are part, if your faith tonight is in Jesus Christ, you are part of the accepted. You are part of the beloved. You are part of the royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a chosen people, uh, a people belonging to God. But if you continue in sin or continue to not do well, continue in lack of faith, sin lies at the door and its desires for you. And he reminds us that we should rule over sin. Sin should not have us captive. We should rule over it. There's something, there's something to denote in relationship to walking in victory. It begins with being born again. When a man is born again, He is no longer under the law of sin and death, but under the law of life in the Spirit. And therefore, it is in Christ, God the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, that men can walk from victory. Remember, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 reminds us that Jesus triumphed over the devil through the cross. He disarmed him, made public spectacle of him, triumphing over him through the cross. And in Christ Jesus, we operate from the position of victory. 
victory. And we can maintain victory by the power of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Okay. Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field. Now let me stop at the comma there. Uh, Cain talked with his brother. This makes me wonder what was the conversation. What are these guys talking about? How much time has passed? If it was actually something that occurred on the 14th of Nisan, could it be that a whole year has gone by and it's coming to the time of that making sacrifice or that Passover lamb, and now maybe Cain's like, hey, man, I'm going to need a lamb. This isn't right. And he's beginning to perhaps have discord. Now, we don't have that. It's conjecture. But here's, it is interesting because I continued to read the Targum of Ankylos, and I continued to read the Targum of Jerusalem, these oral teachings. And it's interesting because in there it shares the dialogue. And it's interesting to note that in that dialogue, Cain makes statements that not only is there not a judge, but there's not another life. That language, no judge and not a life. And he he makes a statement that, hey, in creation it was all good, but it's not all good. And there is no judge and there is no other life. Abel responds and says, no, it was created good, and yes, it's now bad, but good exists, and there is a judge, and there is another life. And so we see, potentially, again, it's extra biblical and it's it's oral teachings, but we see this conflict atheism, if you will, or agnosticism and faith. Started off with works, and it should be good enough, and I can do this my own way. And wait a minute, I see what's going on in the world, and there doesn't seem to be justice. And Abel's saying, no, yes, there is. And it seems that however much time passed, that whatever the conversation was, Cain was not pleased with the results. So, after the comma, it says that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And so we have the shedding of blood, the taking of blood, a murder. God says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Again, this questioning. He said, I don't know. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? weighty question. That's a weighty question. Because the answer is, yes, you are. If we hear that question in our ear, maybe maybe you have ought against a brother, or you know a brother has ought against you. And you might be driving in your car, and the Spirit of God prompts you to pray for that person. (laughs) That is not a time to say, I I am not my brother's keeper. (laughs) I'm not going to pray for that guy. And to be obstinate about that. Remember that God is seeking obedience in our lives. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so, Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? 
he lies to the Lord, I do not know. He knew where his brother was, as did God. I, I do think there's an interesting parental thing that might be picked up from here. Uh, w- we should never ask questions, moms and dads, that we don't already know the answers to. <laughs> uh, and also, asking questions gives the opportunity for confession by kids, and that's a marvelous, redemptive relationship that we as parents can have with our children. So he says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And he, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I think it's noteworthy that the blood cries out. We're told in the book of Hebrews, in fact, in Hebrews, uh, let's read Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me to the New Testament, Hebrews 11. And this is in reference to Cain's offering that was more acceptable. It says in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. Now there's a statement there. Let me note just a couple of connection pieces. He, Abel, obtained witness. Who did he obtain witness from? He obtained witness from God. God testifying. And God testifying of the sacrifice which were his gifts. His gifts being acceptable. And through it, the sacrifice, he being dead, still speaks. Now, go to chapter 12. And uh, what verse in 12? I might have passed it. Oh, no, down here. I'm looking for? I don't have it. (laughs) Yes, 24, thank you. Uh, To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Um, Abel's blood cries out. Jesus Christ's blood cries out. And Jesus' blood cries out of better things, redemption, if you will. And so, all that being said, we come back to chapter 4. Verse 9, the Lord God said, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Remember, Adam was told that the ground was going to be cursed and that through toil he would bring forth harvest. Here now, 
his son Cain is a keeper of the ground. He's committed murder, and his consequence, this judgment upon him, is that the ground would no longer produce for him. He, he says, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. In other words, Adam was going to produce from the toil, but Cain, even in your toil, there's going to be no produce. The ground is not going to produce for you. Depending upon how long he has been keeping the ground, and this is his skill set, this is his ability, this is his means, if you will, for survival, this is heavy and overwhelming. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. It's interesting to ask the question, if anyone, who are the anyones? Right? Yeah, this there's, there's, there's a lot of people, right? And they're brothers and sisters. And Abel was their brother also. Okay? Um, I do like, and you see a hint potentially of repentance, uh, driven out this day from the face of the ground, I shall be hidden from your face, your face. And there, there, there seems to be a hint of remorse there. It is interesting that he doesn't seem to have remorse for the act of murder. You ever notice that sometimes we justify our position internally? I'm right. I shared the conversation last week <laughs> between morning service and evening service, this conversation that I had with my wife. And it's just interesting on even the smallest things, I wasn't willing to budge because in my heart I was saying, I'm right. <laughs> and just justifying poor communication and she had to go somewhere and so you know she had a, she said you know well hey have a good service tonight as she left and I didn't get up to greet her at the door and give her a hug and say god bless you babe I'll see you later tonight but I sat down on my chair and I was still I, I was probably a little bit bothered anybody ever here been a little bit bothered and I said lord I didn't get the next word out that he's already speaking to me in my heart. And he said, you said this morning, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He said to me, is that? consider giving yourself. I said, ah, her car's already out of the driveway. And so I immediately made communication with her. And all that to say, we do that often. And here we find that Cain, it, we don't have a picture of the remorse. He's more concerned about the curse of the ground and him being a vagabond and someone taking his life. Me, me, me. 
inhabitants of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, when they exclaimed and recognized that they were the ones who had taken the very life of the one who was Messiah, they exclaimed, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent, every one of you. Repent, every one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. But the repentance piece is the turning away from our deeds, our wrong behavior. It's an acknowledgement. This is what I used to do, and I'm no longer going to do that. I'm going to do this. It's 180 degrees. I was once doing this. Now I'm going to do this. And there's an acknowledgement that what I did was wrong and a confession. I'm now going to do everything by the power of God to do right. We don't necessarily see this. Okay, let's go on a little bit further. You've driven me out this day from the face of the ground, verse 14. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Uh, much conjecture about what the mark may have been, whether it was on his body, whether it was something that was uh, transformed on him, something that appeared on him or potentially even something that was up to and included given to him. It's all conjecture. We have absolutely no idea about what this looked like. Um, but what we do see is grace. The Lord taking care of. Some commentators have suggested, well, there weren't very many men yet on the earth, so God was preserving. Again, it's conjecture, right? But it's uh, the Lord uh, covering. Verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and born Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Mephushel. And Methushael begot Lamech. Now let me stop here for just a moment. Again, the questions come, uh, well, who are all the people? He built a city. Where'd they come from? Uh, he knew his wife. Uh, who is she? Where did she come from? Uh, this is clearly one of his sisters that had been born. Uh, later, we're going to be told uh, that a man can't marry his sister, sister-in-law, uh, her stepsister, uh, and certain down to a certain generation, uh, but not in this case. Uh, and biologists and others that are uh, Christian biologists have suggested that, well, later the genetic pool, because of exposure to the curse, had degraded enough that mankind, if there was immediate brother-sister marriage that mankind potentially could die off because of genetic mutation problems. It is interesting to me, and I, I do love the science side of things, it is interesting to me that God populated the earth with Adam and Eve to start, but when he comes to Noah ten generations later, 
There's eight in all that are saved on the ark. Uh, four couples, if you will, to repopulate the entirety of the earth. Though others have suggested that potentially the genetic mutation was fourfold. And uh, so four times, if you will. Uh, conjecture. Interesting to think. But it is very noteworthy, and we'll get there when we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8, uh, what actual population counts there could have been at that point in time with the ages that people lived and the probability of the many sons and many daughters, what that could actually look like. Some have been made estimates in the uh, billions, uh, not like 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, but in the 15 billion number. And the numbers are there logarithmically to actually account for that kind of population. So what was it? We don't know. It is interesting to note that uh, Jesus himself says, uh, as it was in the days of Noah, uh, might also account for not only the occurrences that were going on, because he references those, but it's possible that maybe he included even the volumetric uh, capacity of the earth at that time. Again, conjecture, but interesting to think about. So here, here's a little piece. I mentioned that there's a possibility of a level of repentance. It's interesting to me to note that the lineage of Cain is even referenced. Because at the end of the day, they're all going to get wiped out in the flood. All of them. And so one might ask the question again, it seems like an additional detail, why is this here? And I, I don't have a very good answer for you. I have an answer for me that works for me, and it, I, I like this answer uh, because I think it says something about the character of God. And I think the text would bear this out. It's possible that in the process of time, Cain did repent. We see a hint of it, I'll be a vagabond away from your face. It's in there. It's not the preeminent thing. It's, we don't see necessarily that piece of repentance. But what we do see is in Cain's offspring, the name of God in the name of the children. So we see Mehujael. The L is God. Mehujael. And then you have Methushael. These are names of, we see the name of God in these names. Uh, and I didn't actually look at what these names meant. Uh, but it is interesting to note, and we'll see this, and it will, uh, we won't get there tonight in its entirety, um, but we'll see in chapter 5 that the names have significance. And so ascertaining what the names mean is a worthwhile endeavor. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. If you go to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, we basically have the transliteration of names but we don't always get what the name means. Now, there is an interesting resource available. I've not been able to dissect it very well, and it's, uh, I know that there's a university down in Arizona that has this documentation because I read about it uh, in one of the commentaries that a guy uh, had indicated. But what he referenced is that the Hebrew letters themselves are also represent concepts. So they have their, their, their symbol, 
like we have uh, the alphabet, A, B, C, through Z, those symbols simply have sounds associated with them, and they are a letter in sequence, if you will, that we build words, and our words have concepts or meanings associated with them. Many of our words have, in their etymology, other root words, like if you know Latin, you'll know a lot of the roots, and so therefore you can understand what that word means in volume. Does that make sense? The Hebrew, each letter has a concept associated with it. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and you, and if you want to know the Hebrew alphabet, just go to Psalms, and you can look in the Psalms, and it's uh, Psalm 119 is a, it's 176 verses, it's based on eight verses per stanza, and there's 22 stanzas, each of those stanzas are beginning with the letter of the alphabet. So each of the eight verses under Aleph, which is the first letter of the ba- alphabet, will begin with Aleph. And so in the Hebrew, those all begin with that first Aleph. And so for memorization, young people could memorize Psalm uh, 119 very rapidly because they know their alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and, and, and so forth. It's interesting. Aleph, the concept is first or head. Um, Aleph, bet, A-B, ab. Bet or beth is house. We have words like beth lehem. Lehem is bread. Beth lehem is house of bread. or first, of house, head of house. Ab, Abba, head of house, and it's God, right? So we, we see these concepts built in. Well, it's, it's suggested that every name written in Hebrew, if you know the concepts, you would be able to ascertain the meaning of each of those names. And that's significant and can have significance because we find that many of the names, they actually, the people fulfill their very names. They are the fulfillment of the names. Now, next week, because we're going to see and we begin the, the third section of the book of Genesis next Sunday evening, which is the generations of Noah. So we've seen the generations of the heavens and the earth. We saw the introduction, which was the first chapter, basically. And we've seen the generations of the heaven and, and the earth. And that's coming to a conclusion in chapter 4, verse 26. Chapter 5 begins with, uh, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. And so we're going to see uh, these genealogies, if you will, from Adam to Noah. And we're going to have all these particular names. The assignment that you could do this week is ascertain what the meanings of those names are. And I think we'll discover, I know we'll discover, a very interesting picture or a type, if you will, of what is being communicated even through the names and their meanings. Um, so let's, let's go on, let's finish this portion, and uh, it is just about uh, 7.30, so we're coming to the end tonight. It says, and verse 19, this is interesting, 
And Lamech took for himself two wives, first mention of polygamy. Uh, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Should be noteworthy that there's not generations and generations of hunter-gatherers. These guys are, they have uh, instruments, harps and flute. They, they make tents. They're uh, agricultural. They are keepers of livestock. And we get to verse 22, and it says, And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. In our anthropology courses and classwork, uh, there is a whole lot of discussion about the different ages, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and these are hundreds of thousands of years ago, supposedly, and here we find less than 4,000 years, excuse me, 6,000 years of humanity from today back, uh, we find that these guys were proficient in uh, tools and the working of iron and the working of bronze and uh, the making of organs and things like that. Uh, it says, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ana and Zella, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, every young man, uh, even a young man, uh, for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. We really have no idea what he means here. I will say that in the Targum of Ankylos in the Targum of Jerusalem, the, 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 the translation is just slightly different. And the teachings that have been passed down are that Lamech inadvertently killed his son. And it was to his wounding. And therefore, it, as an accident, there was innocent blood, and so he's making the declaration, I am not like Cain. Cain committed murder. I accidentally took the life of someone who was near and dear to me, a son of mine, you know, as, you know, Cain was his very brother. This was a son, uh, also very close and near and dear. And he says, therefore, if Cain is avenged uh, sevenfold, then me seventy-sevenfold. Uh, again, it's conjecture, it's teachings that have been handed down. Uh, what we have here is uh, something we don't fully understand. It perhaps is the beginning of some poetry uh, at that. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Uh, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little note in that assignment in terms of chapter 5. Seth is in that lineage that we'll look at in these ten lines, if you will, or these ten generations. And we're given the definition of Seth's name right here in the text of chapter 4. 
uh, and that is, uh, she said, for God has appointed, the name Seth means appointed. So that'll give you a, a little head start. Now there's only nine more to go. Uh, let's, uh, let's close here, and we'll pick up in chapter five next week. Uh, look forward to gathering together next week and looking into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God. Let's pray and ask God's blessing and benediction as we go from here. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the word. Lord, tonight as uh, we look into the Word of God, we see uh, some interesting things associated with propriety in worship, Lord. And it's our heart's desire that, God, our worship would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, thank you that we are encouraged throughout the entirety of the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That without faith it is impossible to please God. That we are to be the people of faith. Lord, I pray that we would operate in faith. Lord, that we would believe your word, that we would believe the promises contained in your word, and we would live our lives as one standing upon the promises of God. That we would trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you. Father, this week, will you go before us, make rough places smooth, Will you level the mountains before us? Will you make the crooked places straight? Father, will you open the doors before us? May, Lord, as we step out into your harvest field, even as Josh shared this morning, we say four months until the harvest, and Jesus, you said, the harvest is white, ripe unto harvest now. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white. Lord, let us be mindful that there is a great harvest and that we have an assignment. We are to be about the great commission. And we are to be about the great commission with really the great commandment to love you and to love people. So, Lord, may we operate in that by faith, recognizing that we're going to encounter people this week and we're to be salt and light, pointing people to Jesus. Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us. And will you protect us from the evil one? We recognize that if we do well, Lord, there's acceptance. And, and Lord, our consciences will even confirm us. But, Lord, if temptation comes our way and we engage with and we entertain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have it. But your word says that we should rule over it, and we can. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And, Lord, you have given us power. You have given us authority to trample upon snakes and scorpions and all of the power of evil. So Lord, we are more than overcomers through Christ and we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So Lord, may we make the good confession as Paul encourages Timothy. We love you and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name and everyone said a strong amen. Amen. Go in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Have an amazing week in Jesus.